Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Katie's Crib, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. All of a sudden, everything started changing. Like, I'm just sitting there and the doctor's like, are you nervous? Why is your heart rate so high? And I was like, I don't know, like, I'm about to, I'm about to like- Go into surgery and my daughter. And be awake. And like, my doctor was like, cardiology needs to get down here, like right now. And they were like on speakerphone. And she was like, I cannot do the surgery if there's not like a crash cart. I need cardiology. And I was like, huge Chandraland fan. I have watched a yeah. lot, every episode of Grey's, Grey's Anatomy. Anatomy. Me Never too. missed Me an too. episode. And I was like, they're calling in a crash cart. I was cart? like, a crash yeah. cart? Like, what? And I'm like, there. Ha! I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing, doing my Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Katie's Crib. My guest today is a longtime friend and someone I very much look up to. We are talking on today's episode about having a baby on your own, one of the most wild birth experiences I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot, and we've all heard a lot on Katie's Crib, but this one may go down as the wildest because this birth experience included peripartum cardiomyopathy and atrial fibrillation during pregnancy, all of which I had never heard of before. This awesome person has been a friend of mine for a long time, and I love her, and she's an incredible mama, and I am talking about Jordana Malik, who is Semi-Formal's co-founder and the president of development and production. She comes from a background in theater, film, television, digital media, and literary management. Some of Jordana's credits include producing Susanna Fogel's first film, Life Partners, as well as Hello, My Name is Doris, for which she won the Producers Award at the Independent Spirit Awards. She produced Netflix's The Love Birds, which released in May of 2020. Most recently, Jordana executive produced Hulu's Emmy Award-winning miniseries The Dropout, which I loved. And spoiler alert, a film I also loved and sobbed my eyes out, which was a film for Focus Features starring Jim Parsons and Sally Field. Her upcoming work is titled The Idea of You, an Amazon Studios feature starring Anne Hathaway. And Jordana has one incredible daughter who my kids love, whose name is Celia Lou. Molly. Welcome, Jordana. I'm so grateful that you are making the time because I know you are busy. You have a daughter. You have a full fucking time job that is very full and a very full life. It just seems like you're doing a lot of stuff. And I had to have you on to tell us your journey. Also, because I was saying in your intro, I don't think I've ever heard a birth story like yours or an experience like that. Ever, let alone you are a single mom and you are doing it without a partner. Thankfully, you have an incredible support system, but we're going to get into all of this. Okay. This is Jordana. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. I'm a big fan. How did we first meet? I feel like, okay, I've known your husband for a while. I don't even know how, maybe even through Leslie Headland, like years of, probably years ago. And then, I don't know, 
we were in our Rebecca group together, but I knew who you were. Yes, before that's that. where I got. Yeah, like felt such a strong personal connection. But I remember you were producing like one act festivals in L.A. Yes. where all the money was going to charity. I was never good enough to get in one, but I went and supported and saw I mean, them. They were you were good enough to get in them. And it was also literally like a bunch of us casting any actor that knew us and being like, do you want to be yes. in a play? Unscreened. That's right. Unscreened. But that's where I first became aware of like, whoa, this girl's like, you're you're just like very a self-made producer, which is like incredible. When did it occur to you like, I also would like to be a mom. And how did it all of a sudden get realistic? I always knew I'd be a mom later. Like I always knew it was going to be like career was really important to me and that I'd be a working mom. And it was probably by the time I was in my early 30s, I also had decided it would be something I was willing to do on my own when the timing was right. Because at that point I'd like dated so much. I was not at all interested in dating like dad material. Right. You know, I just right. probably should have dated many nice guys instead, but I didn't. And so I feel like I knew that it might not happen in that order for me. And it was something that I was willing to do. And when I was in my mid thirties is when like egg freezing became a thing. It was like an experimental procedure. And then around when I was like 34, wow. it became something that people started doing. So I, I did it and I didn't do it with the intention of having a kid right away, but I just did it knowing I wanted that mm -hmm. option. And then after I did that, I was in a relationship with someone for a few years who already had a child and didn't mm -hmm. want more kids. And so eventually this was like mm -hmm. something. Opposite went different ways. Yeah. So you have these eggies on ice. Yeah. <laughs> Are you feeling the pressure of like, not only do I want to be a mom, I really would like to carry myself like personally, like I want to be pregnant. I want to go through childbirth. Were those like huge life experience things that were big to you? Yeah. I mean, I think like when I first made the decision to freeze eggs, I went into it being like, I know I want to be a mom. I know, I don't know what this will look like for me. I'm going to get information about my body and my fertility and all of that stuff. I didn't have any fertility issues. So I didn't use the eggs that I froze when I was 35. I then lived my life and had this knowledge, which kind of helped me keep moving forward. And then when I was approaching 40, I was like, I'm ready to do this on my own. Like lots of dating, lots of therapy, lots of like things to make the decision. Because <laughs> yeah. I think the when is really hard and career. Mm -hmm. You were in a really like good place where you felt like you were a steady, respected, getting great work, having your own, com like you're a producer. Totally. This is going yeah, good. Yeah. I think it was that too. Yeah. So you make the decision and then what happens? I mean, it's really weird because I made the decision that, and I talked to my fertility doctor and my decision was to start in March, 2020 of, with IUIs, which is turkey-based or method, like not doing IVF. 
I had picked up my sperm a few months before. Tell me how the sperm donor process was for you. Was it like getting a catalog and being like eyes, color, type, age? What are you uh, thinking it was about? Really, like now it's amazing because it, it doesn't even matter, but it was such a tough thing for me. I started a process thinking my daughter has nine godfathers. Should I do this with a friend? Because I cared so. It was really hard to accept my story wasn't going to be what I knew. My parents are still married. My brother and sister are married. Like There was a path that I understood, and this was veering very different from that path. It's so impressive to me. I just think it's so fucking brave. Thank you. When you're a little girl and you're looking at your parents' marriage or your brother's and sister's marriage, and it's very traditional and everything was in the sort of lineup that we know it to be, and you're brave enough that you want something bad enough and believe in your own ability to do it on your own, and you take this left turn to rewrite like the whole way in which your daughter came into your life, I don't think I would have been that brave. Now I look back and I'm like, I'm brave. Like I understand it, but it didn't. I'm lucky to have options. Like I'm lucky to be in a place in my career where I could do this. It's really, I know there's people that do it that have very little financial stability and familial support and community. And I have all those things. You do. And I'm really lucky, but it's definitely like putting one foot in front of the other. And so in March, 2020, I was going to start doing IUIs, but the pandemic hit. And they banned doing IUIs because it was like an elective procedure and no one knew the result this would have on pregnant women and fetuses and all the things. So I talked to my doctor. I was like, okay, I'm going to chill approaching 40. I'll wait another month. And then in April, they still weren't doing IUIs. And then in May, at the end of May, I was going to turn 40 and they still weren't doing IUIs. And I started freaking out. Like I was just like, this is crazy. I can't even go to a bar and get knocked up by a stranger. I'm locked in my house. Right. Like I and I want to have a baby right. and I'm ready and I can't. So I called my doctor and I was like, what do you think? Should I try a home insemination? And she was like, that's not going to tell you anything about your fertility and your egg quality because there's such a high probability of just doing it wrong and time, you know, all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. It's hard to get pregnant. Yeah. It's like down to the hours that you're like perfectly ovulating. And I'm sure they can really see if they have the ultrasound machines and all yes, that shit. Yes. Sure. So she recommended, she was like, I think that you should make embryos and you have eggs, but you could also do a fresh round of IVF if you don't want to use those eggs and we'll get an indication of your fertility that way. And I was very big on wanting all my options. I like always like to have lots of options. So I wanted to save those eggs in case I wanted a second child with a partner when it was actually too late. And because I was like in this sure. approaching 40 and knew that I had a lot of eggs, but I didn't know the quality of them. It was also like, what else am I doing? Like I'm locked in my house at the beginning of this pandemic, might as well go to the fertility clinic every day and talk to a person at least. Yeah. You're like, this is my social life. Exactly. So I basically took the last batch of eggs of my 30s, took them out like the week of my 40th birthday and made Celia. You must have been like, 
the end of my decade, my 30 decades is being wrapped up in a bow with another round of IVF and getting these last 30 something eggs out of my body, picking the sperm donor. Wait, oh, yeah. very quickly, though, to touch on that. What was the hardest decision of the sperm donor? Was it like age? Was it mental shit? Like what? I wouldn't even know. I was really lucky because I used California Cryobank and I had a Sundance Lab mentee years ago whose now wife, stepmother, was the president of the California Cryobank. And she put me in touch with her and she talked me through it a little bit in a real way of like, that helped me get over myself. We call it an unknown donor. We don't call it like anonymous anymore because obviously there's 23 in me and you can everybody can figure everything else out. But she was like, just think of some qualities that are important to you. If I was having a child with a partner, I wouldn't be like, I am not going to have a child with you because your great grandfather like was an alcoholic. It's like, of course, I love my husband. I wanted to have babies with him. And also depression runs in his family. Right. And you're not going to be like, sorry, I cannot do this with you. Yeah, no way. Because I would have picked someone two inches taller. You just... I do joke and call her my designer baby, but like you are like doing that a little. And I was like, don't do this stuff. Find somebody that looks like not that different from you. Celia is your twin. Exactly like you. you, And she's gorgeous. Thank you. So you were like someone who's like me, looks like me. At the time I was like, I want someone that also looks a little bit like the people that I date. And at that point, my brain is different, but I that was like, sense. what if I meet someone and like, they want to adopt my child? And th- that's changed so much since having a child. But at the time that was a little bit in my brain and I had a bunch of friends over and we like drank a bottle of wine and smoked a joint. And we were just like, nice. let's make this fun. And I like curated the friends. Cause I was like, these are the people that know the type of people I date. Oh, I love this party. Yeah. It was fun. So it was just kind of to keep me from getting heady and overthinking it. Too bogged down. And Mm -hmm. like really, I think in your case, it's like finding the joy in this process was probably very important. Okay, so you get, you do, it's fucking COVID. Yeah. You get another round. Thank God for you, fertility was not an issue. You had a lot of eggs. Embryos get mixed in Petri dishes. Obviously, they take the best one. Yes. And the only people you're seeing are these doctors. I know. The only people I'm seeing are these doctors. And like, I think it was a popular time because even from having a baby also in this time, like a bunch of friends of mine were on this secret pregnancy chain that's now like a mom group of hundreds of people. But We were like, there were so many people, I think, that work a lot that are like women that are directors or producers or actors that were like, this is like the world giving me a moment to like have a baby. So I did make this my priority, right? Yeah. 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 How did you find out that it worked? So like, did it work the first time? It did. So I I took like the next month, like my body off from having done IVF and then the next month they transferred the best embryo, which I knew I had tested just for any chromosomal abnormalities. So I also knew that she was a girl, which was something that I felt weird about because I didn't really want to pick, but I also was like very scared of like 
penis. Like I was just like, I'm a girl alone. Like, what am yeah, I going to yeah, do? Like, I don't, you know. Yes. Um, but yeah, and then I they implanted, and then you have that two week wait that everybody has when they're trying and know what's going on. And I went to Joshua Tree with my friend and her 10 year old at the time daughter and tried to be zen about it. You have to like shoot yourself up when you do IVF for like the whole first trimester. And then I found out it stuck and then the journey began. Now, I want to hear about your pregnancy and then the craziest birth yes. thing I've ever fucking heard in my life. How did it feel being pregnant? Was it what you thought? What would you have done differently? What would you have done the same? At no part of my pregnancy was I like, this is amazing. And I also didn't feel like super connected to my pregnancy. So I was like freaked out, like this thing I wanted so badly. I never really felt kicking that much. I was constantly like Googling, trying to get like information. I was really nauseous in the first trimester. My parents, who I'm very close with, bought an RV and they drove from drove Florida cross country to, you? to see me. Yeah. They drove like all around the country to see all of their children and my grandma who recently passed, that. but she was a hundred. Yeah. They're like, you can't keep up That's the way. That's so cool yeah. of them. That's awesome. You felt like shit. And I like hearing that. Like you were like this thing you had obviously fought very hard for and not just bang, whoop, got pregnant drunkenly one night. It's like you, this was a, this was an expensive. This was a priority. This was something you fought for. And then you're like, wait, I'm not feeling all like earth mother goddess of the planet. Like, right. Pregnancy. I, there are some women that really have that. I, I did know. not either. I was scared the whole time. I was trying to feel good. I'm doing everything I could. I didn't gain like a ton of weight in my pregnancy. Like I thought that I would. And I, I did look how I had hoped in my head I would look, but no one was seeing nice. me. No one touched <laughs> my stomach. Like I was like, Totally oh, alone. What a fucking oh crazy! God, and I had all these fantasies that now have come true, but felt impossible when I was pregnant. Which was like I had built this community that was going to help me raise my child, and I was like had oh, all this stuff, and everything was closed, and everything was taken away, and I felt so just isolated. Oh, and that's how I felt too. It was a tough time. So when you went into labor. Tell, talk to me about the end. Did you make decisions of who was going to be in the room with you? Was that like really important? I always knew that I was going to have to have a C-section because I had a fibroid removed like a few years before that I needed to do in order to be able to get pregnant. And the doctor was like, we recommend a C-section because your uterus was stitched and it's you, we don't want Oof. a rupture or something. So I had already come to terms with that. So much of like pregnancy and like early motherhood is like coming to terms with things not looking like what you think. So you for me, there were like yes. lots of steps of that. So I had a planned C-section that turned into an emergency C-section, but I knew I was going to have that. At the end of my pregnancy, in my early third trimester, I potted with some friends in Ojai, which was like the last good days. Like I hiked every single day. I was like this mythical creature that was like 
walking around in a floral dress pregnant, like on the hilltops. Fuck yeah. In Ojai, which for all of you listening that don't know, Ojai is an hour away from L.A. And it's like mountains and streams and orange groves. I love it there. It's like my favorite L.A. close place. Yeah. So that was like month seven. And then I came back. I had this cough and it was just like really bad. I'd bring it up to doctors. I'd bring it up to my acupuncture, like bring it up to everybody. And people are like, it's a post-nasal drip. It's whatever. And then I also was feeling like I couldn't sleep at all. And I was like short of breath, but everybody was like, I know the third trimester, like everything gets smushed and you get really tired and you uncomfortable and you can't sleep. And all of these things that, that were happening to me were like signs of a really bad third trimester. But for me, I'd never been pregnant before, didn't know any different, but I was just starting to feel like more and more helpless. I was shooting a pilot for the show. I love that for you. Every single day I would get in the car to go to set and I would turn back around because I'd just like cough until I threw up and I'd feel so miserable. My friend's a DP and she was like operating a camera at nine months pregnant. I was so like, why can't I do this? What's wrong with me? Some people literally have a cold their entire pregnancy. In your case, it was all signs to something really fucking serious. Yes. So then my parents were flying in. That was the initial plan was my parents were going to fly in like a couple weeks before the plan C-section. My sister was going to come in. It was still pandemic, so you couldn't have more than one person in the room. And I had decided that was going to be Rebecca Ardula. And then she'd switch spots in the recovery room with my mom. But I just didn't, because it was a surgery, I was like, let's let the like professional people in the room. And then once I moved, I'll have that. So I was 32 weeks or so. 33 weeks was when like at those appointments, the baby was always great, healthy. Towards the end, I gained like 20 pounds in a week and I wasn't eating any food. I'd maybe gained 20 pounds like the whole pregnancy. And then all of a sudden it was like 20 pounds in a week and then like 15 pounds the next week. And I finally, thank God for honestly preeclampsia, my blood pressure started getting a little high, but it was like a weird kind of high. So my doctor was like, get a blood pressure monitor. Let's monitor your blood pressure. I do think we're going to try to get you to 37 weeks, but I think this baby is going to be like before 40 weeks. I called my parents and I was like, I think you guys should make your tickets next week. This is going to be happening sooner. And at this point I was so happy all I wanted was this baby out of me. Like I felt Yeah, I'm miserable. like so nervous at this point. Yeah. So you feel like shit. I'm like, thank you. Take it out. Just take it out. Yeah. I bought the blood pressure thing. I called my doctor because there were a couple times that it was high. She was like, let's have you go to the hospital. We'll give you these like steroid shots for the baby's lungs and like all this stuff. So I go to the hospital. They test me for the preeclampsia. They send me home. But there were little things that were weird, like the heart rate thing would like keep beeping in weird ways. 
They thought it was because I was coughing, so they turned it off. There were a lot of little things that were odd, but that at this point, I just was like so used to all of it. So then I went home and then the next day it was also like a little bit high. And my doctor was like, all right, we're going to have you go back. This time I would say, maybe pack a bag. You might be having this baby. My friend Nathan took me to the hospital and then they're like, you have like severe preeclampsia. So we're going to take this baby out like in the next hour. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm psyched though. I definitely like was like, oh wait, like my family's not here yet. I had ha- like had a night nurse, like a postpartum doula. Like you're a producer. You like, I already produced this. I I've planned everything. The cast is set. Yes. This is not my fucking plan. Exactly, what the fuck? Exactly. I called our, the doula and she was like, okay, I have to go get a COVID test. She literally ran into the operating room, like just in the next Get time. out of here. This is Rebecca Beninati, yes. who you all know and love. If you're Katie Cribbs, yes. she was my doula as well. Yes. And it's how I really got closer with Jordana because we were in the same mommy and me class once Celia was here. Yes. Okay. And I also was like starting to get a sense that things were wrong because like my doctor was very big on only one person in the room, pandemic. And I, when I said it was going to be my doula, she was a little bit like, you're having a C-section. I don't know if you need a doula in the room. The nurses are going to be there. Maybe you should have it be your mom. And all of a sudden, my friend Nathan could have been in the room if I like. She was like allowing. There were things that started to feel weird. They're about to give me the anesthesia, and the anesthesiologist is like, her heart rate is one eighty five. Something's going on. That's when like all of a sudden everything started changing. Like I'm just sitting there and the doctor's like, are you nervous? Why is your heart rate so high? And I was like, I don't know. Like I'm about to, I'm about to like go into surgery and and be awake. And like, I, I guess I'm nervous. I've been out of breath for a long time. So I just didn't know what was going on. And then all of a sudden it was like everyone in nice voices. We just talked to your mom. She's on a plane. She's coming tonight. She'll be here by eight in the morning. Who the fuck have you found out? Are people calling people? Yeah. So then all of a sudden, like more and more people started like gathering outside. And my friend Nathan, he was going to be communicating with people. But then my doctor was like, cardiology needs to get down here like right now. And they were like on speakerphone. And she was like, I cannot do the surgery if there's not like a crash cart. I need cardiology. And I was like, huge Chandrilam fan. I have watched a yeah. lot, every episode of, of Grey's Anatomy. Anatomy. Me Never too. missed Me an too. episode. And I was like, they're calling in a crash cart? I was cart? like, a crash yeah. cart? Like what? And I'm like there. And then cardiology came down and while they were taking the baby out, they're like doing an echocardiogram and they're like saying out loud, there's damage on the left side, there's damage on the right side. Her heart is functioning at 20% capacity. And Rebecca's like rubbing my temples, taking deep breaths, taking pictures. It was crazy. And then they took the baby out and she was beautiful and healthy. And they're like, okay, we need to take the baby to the NICU because it was almost 36 She weeks. was early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not that early, but thank God. Not that early, thank God. And they're like, we need to take Jordana to cardiac ICU. Rebecca asked them to give me, while they were prepping the rooms, they're like, can she sit, can you just put the baby on her 
for 20 minutes. I know I'm going to cry too. <laughs> oh my God. I can't but so, and I didn't this. even like occur to me what was going on. Then the baby was just like gone. She was like taken away. Sorry. No, don't be sorry. I love you. No, I know you from a cry. I mean, I don't like, like I remember, I mean, I remember being in mommy and me class over zoom with you and you, you're such a doer. Totally. And you've handled your whole life and you take your life in your own hands and you make shit happen for yourself, for your projects, for your motherhood, for all of this. And now because you had peripartum cardiomyopathy and atrial fibrillation, you were rendered completely helpless and literally everyone around you had to do everything. It didn't occur to me that we were going to be like separated, that I was in such a dire place like that. Basically, they like took me away and took her away. And then I woke up in the morning in the ICU and I felt so much better. And a doctor came in and was like, said a bunch of things. What I had took away from it was like, you're going to be okay. I heard AFib and my dad had AFib and I heard like pieces, but I didn't have anyone there. My dad's a, a retired doctor. And so I'm so used to having like a translator when it comes to this stuff from him. Oh, I can't imagine doing that on your own. Yeah. So I just like heard it all and it was like, I'm going to be okay. My mom came a few hours later and that's when I like learned they gave me the name of what I had. And I was texting like my pregnancy chain mom group, giving people information. People's reactions were like terrifying. And I just don't think I realized like the extent of it. No one knew until like months later if I was gonna be a survivor or not. It's the leading form of death postpartum. It's oftentimes not uncompletely missed. Yeah, it's completely missed. Why does it happen? They don't know. It's when a pregnant woman's heart becomes weakened and enlarged. It is um, the most common type of treated heart arrhythmia, right? And an arrhythmia, just for layman's terms, your dad is not here right now, but an arrhythmia is when the heart beats too slowly, too fast, or in any sort of irregular way, right? So that's but not your heart connected. was operating. Yeah. So that's like, right. I mean, it is connected. I went into atrial fibrillation because my heart was... Because of the peripartum cardiomyopathy. Yes. Two different things that I was dealing with from this. The heart failure piece, the peripartum cardiomyopathy, is basically just that my pregnancy attacked my heart and no one knows why. They don't know if it's genetic. They don't know if it's like hormonal. Like they don't know why you have to have never had a heart condition to be diagnosed with this, this form of heart failure but it just happened. There's so much still that's a mystery. Like I'm not allowed, there's like a 95% chance that it would happen again if I got pregnant again. I My heart is completely healed, which is amazing. It took a year for it to completely heal. And my AFib just had an ablation a few months ago to try to get rid of that. And it's seeming like it's working. But yeah, so it's like one of the only like forms of heart failure that people really do just can completely recover from. And they don't know if that's just because my heart was really strong before. I didn't, it wasn't like this long period of time that I was in this condition. It's just all so unheard wow. of. 
I also went on a lot of medications that I'm now like on some for the rest of my life, mainly just because they won't know if I would have just healed on my own, if the medications helped me to heal. It just was such a weird, mysterious thing. And so no one saw coming. No one saw coming. When did you finally get Celia Lou to the room? For almost a week. And they were like, you can't hold her, right? No, I couldn't see her. I had to be so heavily monitored and hooked up to things that they couldn't take me there to the NICU to see her, even though I felt totally fine. They were like, would take me, like started taking me on like walks. And I was like, trying to talk the whole time so they wouldn't think I was at all out of breath. I'm like, just let me see my child. So what ended up happening is they released Celia. She got released from the hospital before me. They released her to my mom and they let my mom sleep in the last night I was in the hospital room with me and the baby. I could hold her, but I couldn't like leave the hospital room with her. The problem was that I was hooked up to these heart monitors that like went up that beeped anytime your heart rate went above, it might've even been a hundred or 120 or something. And because I was an AFib, it was constantly beeping. I would move and it would beep and nurses would run in and I would pick her up and it would beep and nurses would run in and take her away from me. So it was like a very horrible time. And when I came back from the hospital, I wasn't allowed to get my heart rate over a hundred I wasn't allowed to drink more than two, like two big water bottles of water. I was on an extreme low sodium diet. It was really hard. And who was your support system? Who did you have? Who was around you to help with Celia? Also, like, did your milk come in and you like, (sighs) yeah, that's a part of it, right? Because you're on so many medicines. Like, there's no way. When I was in the hospital, the lactation consultants would come and showed me how to pump. And there was plenty of milk. Like I would try to pump because it's like the only thing that made me feel closer to this baby that I was separated from. They brought the milk to her, I think maybe one time. And then my OB was like, what are you doing? They put me on a lot of different medicines and they were all technically safe to breastfeed on, but I was on a water restriction. I like wasn't being given much food. She was like, I don't think you should do this. Obviously it's your choice. And I hadn't made a decision yet until I had gotten home from the hospital and I went to the pharmacist and I was on Coumadin, which you're allowed to breastfeed on, which is a blood thinner, but it's a tough blood thinner to be on. You can't eat leafy greens. You have to constantly be monitored and adjusted. And the pharmacist was like, can I ask you If you don't breastfeed, you could just take this pill Zeralto, which I'm on still, once a day. And you don't have to worry about how much leafy greens you eat. Leafy greens and all this stuff. But it's not safe for breastfeeding. And that day, like I went home and I was like, I'm just not, I hadn't breastfed yet. And I was like, like it was a very hard decision, but I made the decision to not do it because of the medicines and because I couldn't, I was never going to be able to do it without supplementing formula because I couldn't drink enough water to even make the milk like this is great like 
What did the after experience look like? Who was your support system? I know you have, she has nine godfathers. Your parents are super involved. I know you're close with your siblings, but like, how did that look? My parents were here. My sister came a few days later. My friend, Nathan, he was there. I mean, I had like meal train beyond meal train of like so much food. I had the night nurse and she called another night nurse so that they could shift because I needed more than like the package I initially got. I hadn't figured out the nanny situation versus like daycare and like what I was going to do yet because this was also a month early. And so I ended up having hiring a nanny and like one of my friends who was pregnant but had art like with her second, she like interviewed people for me and found my nanny. And and I didn't know I was like such a hot commodity for a nanny because I was like a single mom. I don't have to deal with a partner. It was a newborn baby girl. So we like lucked out. We have the best nanny in the world. And like eventually things started looking up and it felt like it was like years, but it was probably like within the first three months. I was like cleared to exercise again. My heart was getting, it wasn't yet healed, but it was like, I guess if it starts to show improvement, it like means you are likely to fully recover. So the AFib took a lot longer. That's been like a couple of years of just figuring it out because I was in it persistently. And then, and that's what I remember so well in that mommy and me class, you were like, to have to ask for help all day and all night for myself and for my daughter a month on end, I'm sure was just such a an experience for you that was humbling and also in gratitude and complete surrender to the experience. And just, I mean, I still work on that with like therapists. Asking for help is like not my thing and it's never been my thing. Not in your DNA. And I love to help. Thank heavens your heart starts to go in in a positive direction. Celia, thank God, is thriving. Totally thriving. When I look at your Instagram and you're flying all around the country alone, solo, with your baby girl, who's now a toddler, but her whole life, she's been flying around with you. She's on set. She's got godfathers and uncles and all this shit who are like huge parts of her lives and taking her to brunch and all this stuff. I mean, she's like so magical to me. How is it going? How do you feel about motherhood? Is it what you thought? What are you good at? What are you bad at? Tell me. I love it. I love being a mom. I really love it. And I love being a solo parent. I just think being a new parent is hard. So it's like we're all in the same boat and you learn how to do it however you do it. So I feel like I have friends that partners go away and they're like, I don't know how you do this. My partner is going away for a month or like going on tour. For me, it was very much like I figured out right away because I had to. Like, I always think about when I used to cocktail waitress and in New York, like in my early 20s and how you have all of the drinks balanced on the tray. And if someone came along and took a drink off the tray to try to help you, it would all crumble. That's how solo parenting is. Like you've got it figured out and it's hard to let people help you because you're like, no, 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 no. If you take the stroller like out of my arm, then I'm going to drop the baby. Like, And I, my I'm weight is, dis- is not well distributed. Yeah. yeah, sure, sure, sure. And you figure out how to have people help you. Um, 
quick things I want to ask you. I don't want to take too much of your time. What is something you're really good at in parenthood that surprised you? I think I'm good at being present, which I like never thought I would be because I work all the time. I always say that I would love to be a full-time mom and I'd love to be a full-time producer. And I feel like I'm weirdly succeeding at doing both without, and I'm tired. It's not like I don't feel burnt out, but like I do feed off of both things. So I think I am, when I'm with my daughter, I mean, it's not like I don't like sneak, sneak some peeks at my emails and text messages as they come in. Yeah, but, I but you're feel good like at I'm like, there. I'm going to be with her. I'm going to be with her right now. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. What's something in parenting that you need to work on? There's so much that I need to work on. What's the, what's one thing I wanted to learn like rye and do the rye technique. And I didn't, it's like against my nature, but because I tried to do it, I was like aware of how much I like praise my daughter for like pooping. Yeah. And they're like not into that. Yeah. So I feel like even though I don't need to go all rye, there's certain things that I don't want to put weight in that like I find really hard to not do because I look at her and I'm like, I love you too much. Yeah. Like you're perfect. You're fucking adorable and a gorgeous. And I love what you're wearing. I know. Rye, for people listening, like rye sometimes says like too much praise is a bad thing. I think rye would even say any praise is a bad thing. But um, the fact that you're even aware. Right. I feel like that's all I can do is just be aware. Yes. That's all I can do. Yes. My daughter took a pee-pee in the potty yesterday and I was running around the fucking house like it was like New Year's Eve. And I was like, oh, God. Whatever. We're all doing our fucking best. Okay. Um, It sounds like Celia's really into ballet these days. (laughs) Is she into it? She is. I mean, this is where I'm like, am I a tiger mom? Like, I just... The uh, earliest you could put them in ballet was class, like 18 ballet. months. And I like 18 months to the day, I'm like, we're doing ballet. She had just started walking too much. Were you a that. ballet kid? Were I you was in ballet, ballet at a little age? Okay, yeah, sure, sure. But I like, I was also, I got tall and I got boobs. My career ended before it started. And I was fine with it because I wanted to like do things with my friends. And eventually you're like not going to go to ballet four times a week. I just think it's so funny. Like watching her... Like she's constantly twirling and she doesn't really know what she's doing, but she, it just is so funny to me. So it's really just my own satisfaction. But why? I mean, this is the only time you can do that because at a certain age, she's going to refuse. Exactly. I have a feeling you're not going to force her. So like, no. This is the only time that you can do it. I'm I'm a sucker for it too. I mean, Uh Vera's in fucking ballet and music and and it's it's more for the two like the outfit that I the one video I made for my mother that I'll have till the end of time yes um what's the one registry item you couldn't have lived without there's this thing for moms that are bottle feeding or combo feeding or whatever called the baby Brezza which is like a Keurig machine for formula and that was like I didn't register for it but I got it after formula became a thing it was truly a lifesaver because you just like press a button and like it mixes perfectly and it's whatever temperature you want it to be. Real lifesaver. Love it. Yes. Baby Brezza. Um, oh, I want a question. How did the nine godfathers make the cut? Okay. So basically for me, it was like, I, I have a great dad and brother 
And I, I'm from a, like a heteronormative, like traditional family. And there was something for me that was really hard to think about not having a male figure in her life daily. And I also don't even know what that looks like because I'm not with my person. So I just knew that I had all these great men in my life. And also many of them don't have kids of their own. It's amazing to have other parent friends and mom friends, but I have found that my friends without kids have been the most like detrimental to me and Celia's life because they're the only people that love your kid more than anything else in the world. But the nine godfathers were like my best friend, Nathan, and my old business partners when I had a company called Haven and Showalter, who's my partner now. And people that like, I'm like, you can do different things with her and she'll get to see what a man is through my eyes. Who love, are like a really that I healthy yeah. male role model influence energy is in her life. Yes. Exactly. I'm so grateful for your time and for your like your story and sharing it with all of us, Katie's Crib listeners. I just think it's so inspiring and epic. Thank I'm you. so grateful that your heart is on a very great road to recovery and that Celia Lou is the best and she's so stinking cute. It's insane. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. I want to hear from you. Let's chat. Questions, comments, concerns? Let me know. You can always find me at Katie's Crib at Shondaland.com. Katie's Crib is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.